Welcome to The Green Canary. I'm Elfie Scott, a journalist and writer, and I'm joined today by my co-host, the wonderful author and environment reporter, Ant Sharwood, in what is going to be a slightly different episode to our usual format. We've got a couple of episodes like this coming up through the summer that will be slightly different from the sort of news content we're usually talking about. Our summer series is going to have longer conversations and take some deeper dives. Today, I'm going to be speaking to Ant about his incredible book, The Brumby Wars, which was first published earlier this year, I believe. It's Ant's second book, and it focuses on the conflict that surrounds Australia's wild horses, the Brumbies. It's no secret that I love this book, by the way. I've told Ant that many, many times. I've posted on social media about it a bunch because it's a truly captivating read, and he's smiling at me approvingly right now as I say this, but I swear I haven't been manipulated into it. <laughs> it's a fantastic investigation into something that I'm sure most of us would have probably never heard of, but in actual fact symbolises not just environmental battles, but the battles around how we define Australia in general and the colonial obsession with icons that aren't maybe all they're cracked up to be. Ant, welcome. Uh, how are you going today? Wow, what a great intro, Elfie. And it's, it's, I'm going great, thanks. It's, it's terrific to be, um, well, it's a little frightening actually to be on the receiving end of your inquisition this afternoon. <laughs> it's not going to be like but too assaulting. Me, give me your best shot. And, <laughs> um, you know, you've no doubt got questions for me, but I, off the bat, I found it fascinating that you said maybe most Australians aren't aware of it. Maybe it's a generational thing. Maybe sort of most Australians under 30 haven't thought much about the Brumbies. But mm. I think this issue only really reared its head like a horse um, in the last couple of years. So maybe it did come as a fresh issue to you, which is interesting. Yeah, I had truly never heard of it before I came across this book. But I mean, like I said, I was instantly drawn into it. But can you give me the basic rundown on the problem with the Brumbies for those of us like me who never heard of it before? Okay, well, the problem is, uh, d d depends what sort of problem you want, you want to cast it as, um, because for supporters of Brumbies, the, the problem is they, they want to get rid of them. But Look, basically, we have half a million wild horses in Australia. Uh, most of them are in the outback, um, where they're not considered a pest species. And they're shot from helicopters and they're dispensed with, like, feral camels and feral donkeys and feral goats and feral pigs. But in the high country of New South Wales and Victoria and in one or two other areas slightly further afield, uh, Brumbies are cherished by many. Mm. Now, sadly, these are the areas where their impact is, is greatest. Uh, the alpine areas of Australia uh, comprise a sixth of 1% of our entire landmass. So they're a speck. They're a little absolute pinprick on the Australian landmass. And in these areas, you have plants that look more like the Siberian or the Canadian tundra. You have these unbelievable little ecosystems uh, upon which the heaviest grazer was once a copperhead snake. Well, not they graze. The heaviest <laughs> animal or, or an echidna or something like that. Uh, not a three, four, five hundred kilo horse. So basically this, you know, the horses do not belong in the high country. Uh, but they are culturally significant to many for two key reasons. One, they were celebrated in our stories from Banjo-Patterson, in our meaning white, white people's stories, post-colonial, from Banjo-Patterson through to the Silver Brumby series written by Eileen Mitchell. Both of those became movies. The Silver Brumby was a movie with Russell Crowe. Uh, I think it was his work before Romper Stomper, a very little-known <laughs> Russell Crowe movie. But anyway, the 
the cultural significance is there for many, um, and that cultural significance is also um, in in what the Brumbies represent beyond characters in in famous Australian stories. The, the Brumbies are avatars for um, symbols, if you like, for the 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 lifestyle of running cattle, the pastoral lifestyle yeah, of the country. Sure. Now, the cattle were kicked out. Um, Victoria only 10, 20 years ago and of New South Wales more like 50, 60 years ago, um, they did terrible damage to the high country as well, to this pristine ecosystem that I was mentioning. Uh, and it, it had the 50, 60 years to recover and then along came the Brumbies in huge numbers. So because the Brumbies used to be shot back in the day because they got in the way of the cattle, ironically. <laughs> um, but, you know, and, and the Brumbies are just wild horses that escape from farms. People ask how do they get there? That's how they got there. So Banjo loves them. Eileen Mitchell loved them in the Silver Brumby series. People love them. They see them as symbols of their stories and of freedom itself because they write a lot of songs about wild horses for a reason. Um, that's what you've got. It's an, un, it's an environmental debate, Elfie, unlike any other. Usually you have uh, financial or corporate interests versus um, landscape protection. Here we have stories and mythology versus landscape protection. That is so interesting. It's it, such an interesting way of putting it. It's a unique problem that we have in the high country. Yeah, right. And, I mean, politicians have actually backed the Brumbies as well, right? So in 2018, I believe the then Deputy, Deputy New South Wales Premier, John Barillaro, sought to actually protect the Brumbies, right, and it ended up in legislation. Yeah, within about three days. Um, the Kosciuszko Wild Horse Heritage Act came into being in 2018. It was the first law, it is the first law in Australian history um, to prioritise a native, a invasive or non-native species in a national park. I mean, the National Parks Act, there's a different one in each state, but all of them explicitly state these places exist to protect native fauna and flora. So uh, it's like producing legislation to protect cane toads or something like that. Absolutely the equivalent of that. Um, right. So it was an incredible thing and, and, and it protected the Brumbies. Now, here's what happened. Um there were probably 2,000 of them or thereabouts around in about uh, the year 2000. Uh, I'm talking Kosciuszko National Park, which mm -hmm. is the largest alpine area we have in the country. Uh, that number got up towards more like 20,000 uh, before the Black Summer fires. It was then agreed after a recount last year or earlier this year that actually the real number is more like 14,000, 15,000. So you've got 15,000 Brumbies in a place that really shouldn't have any and where I know that less than 2,000 was deemed to be a problem by rangers decades ago. Uh, so you've got this vast number protected by law. But, but there is some good news. Um, the, the legislation still mandates a plan of management. We haven't had one. It came out last month. The plan of management now says the 15,000 is going to be reduced to 3,000. Mm -hmm. um, the Brumby Wars have only just started because as that 15,000 is reduced, some of that will be trapping and removing to people who can rehome them. Some of them will be by shooting. As, as the trapping happens, there's going to be wars in the National Park. There will be people opening trap yards, letting the horses free. There's... This story is only just warming up. Yeah, wow. Okay. Yeah. And I mean, I know that you said that for the research for this book, you interviewed about 60 people and mm. 30 of those were on the side of getting rid of the Brumbies, yeah. 30 of those were in favour of protecting them. But I think it's really interesting that you interviewed people who weren't necessarily on that environmentalist side mm. who wanted to protect the Brumbies because, you know... 
they are rallying for something that is so obviously maybe against your interests as well, mm. um, you know, as a green guy. Yeah. Um, did you discover anything about them that surprised you? That's that's a really good question. Um, I, I feel like I discovered that a, about half of them were really rational people <laughs> and about half of them weren't. <laughs> but, I feel like that can be said for most people, to be yeah, fair. Yeah, but, but it's easy. That's the whole thing. It's easy in a polarised world to go... I'm interested in the environment. You champion these bloody horses that are destroying the part of the environment that I love mm. and, and cancel that entire 50% of a debate and just say, well, you're all idiots. And that would have been a really easy book to write. It would have been an easy book to write with a title like The Horses Destroying Kosciuszko or, you know, Shoot All These Feral Bloody Invaders. Um, it would have been a great... And, and you know what? I probably would have sold more copies because... <laughs> Not, not that the book's dudding. The book's humming along. It's doing what, what an environment book does. It's, it's, it's selling its numbers. You know, they're never going to sell as many as Trent Dalton, but, but they do what they do, these environment books. And so it's going fine. But I think you might have fired up a whole lot more people, or I might have, if I'd really written a, a sort of book that only went one way. Yeah, sure. And just slammed those people. Yeah. But I wanted to – I really wanted to, to undertake a different project. I wanted to – contribute in a small way to our Australian dialogue and I wanted to put it out there and say this is this issue let it be known that these are the passions on all sides and Mm. these are the facts of the science that can't be disputed but here are the people who nonetheless like the horses now some of them are science deniers and I didn't include much of that science denial in my book because I tried to keep it a factual book and that was gobbledygook but if they love horses because they grew up on the stories, you know, there's a woman called Jill Pickering in the book. She's the president of the Australian Brumby Alliance. She was born with polio. Horses gave her freedom. She couldn't walk, but she could ride a horse. Yeah. She one day, she was, in, she was actually born in England. She moved to Australia. One day, as a young woman in Australia, she took a horse trek through the Victorian Alps, again, with a sympathetic company that could help someone who's slightly disabled, like, like she is. And she saw her first Brumbies. Um, she fell in love with them. She fell in love with the idea of them. So this woman, Jill Pickering, she doesn't deny science so much. It's just not of interest to her. She has seen wild Australian brumbies and fallen in love with them. And can you relate to that? Yes, I can. And who can't? And and that's that's the important thing. You need to put in a book like I've written that, that there are people with genuine human passions out there. And by the way, Jill Pickering... Uh, took the state of Victoria to court when they threatened to kill her Bogong mob, just 110 horses up on the Bogong High Plains, the highest part of Victoria. Um, And, you know, they are going to go, those horses. They have no future, um, alas for her. And she lost in court and she lost her life savings, which was over half a million dollars. Oh, my God. And she spent all that herself in legal fees. And, you know, these people, I felt it was important to chronicle these and other stories in there. And as I say, lay the entire issue out for people's understanding. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, we're talking about this uh, sort of relegated to New South Wales and Victoria, but it's not just a New South Wales problem and it's not even just a Kosciuszko problem. So what are the solutions that you believe could be adopted on that wider level? Yeah, well, I I went to South Australia to to find, you know, one of the solutions. And at a place called Coffin Bay at the tip of the Air Peninsula, um, you know, near Port Lincoln, there's an area um, where the Brumbies used to run. Um, 
They'd been there since about 1850. Um, different stock, but all Australian wild horses. Different stock, I mean, to the Kosciuszko horses, but all Australian horses that are wild end up being called Brumbies, even if though Brumby herds can look really different. Really? Even within Kosciuszko. Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, the ones down south of Threadbow, they've got like heads like buckets. They're ugly, <laughs> they're ugly things. And the ones up in the north of the park, uh, some of them could pass for thoroughbreds they're they're taller they're bigger yeah they're, right. they stride, they're bold yeah yeah so you know but but they're all brumbies and they were actually ponies the one at coffin bay anyway coffin bay south australia they had some brumbies in the area where they had them it became national park locals got together made a sanctuary they built some land uh, sorry they bought some land and they fenced it off and they went right this land is now called Brumby's Run, which is a nod to a Banjo-Patterson poem of the same name. And they uh, have Brumbies there. So they're sort of semi-wild. I mean, they don't they don't feed them. They keep straw just in case a really dry summer comes. But, mm. uh, you know, they don't go out and feed them every day. They're, they're running wild on a property that's large enough to grow grass and replenish it itself. Uh, and same with water. Um, and... That's the sort of blueprint that leads me all the way from South Australia back towards the East Coast here and think, well, maybe we could have outside of national parks, just out, outside of national some, something similar, so that people could see Brum, Brumbies running through the snow gums, not the snow gums in the national park, but the one just near the national park, and have all their iconography and pretend they're in a Banjo-Patterson poem <laughs> and, you know, visit their wild Brumbies that are sort of almost wild, uh, but not quite because there's a great big fence around the enclosure. Look, it's complicated, but that's one solution. Yeah, yeah, right. And you speak a bit in the book as well. I mean, you've mentioned it a couple of times uh, today about the mythology attached to the Brumbies mm. and figures like the man from Snowy River. But you speak in the book about the guy who you reckon is like the contemporary man from Snowy River who is actually an Indigenous guy, right? And yeah. what do you reckon that says about the story in general? Okay, so that's a really interesting thing. That's That's chapter two of the book. And the chapter is called... The real man from Snowy River, and the real man from Snowy River is is about who the real character was in the poem. I mean, it was a work of fiction, but still, who it, that character in that work of fiction was perhaps based upon. But th that chapter title, "The Real Man from Snowy River," is also playing to a man called Richard Swain, who's an Indigenous river guide, and no one knows the Snowy River better than he, even though his people are Wiradjuri, which is from further north in New South Wales. But he, he was born in the mountains himself and no one knows it better than him. No one knows the stories around it. Um, and I, I, I declare him to be the modern day man from Snowy River. <laughs> but it's not just the modern day man from Snowy River who's an Indigenous man. Um, basically, I uncovered some evidence in, in the research for this book that the place where the ride um, happened had to probably happen in a place called the Biabbo Wilderness in the southeast corner of Kosciuszko National Park, a very dry place sort of in the lee of the mountains. All the snow and rain falls on the mountains and there's nothing left for poor old Biabbo in the corner. And um, in that dry landscape, you have some unbelievably steep hills, steeper than anywhere else in the high mountains. And all there are a lot of stories around there and all the stockmen around there were Aboriginal and there are some massive clues in Banjo's poem. For example, he talks about pine-clad ridges. There's a famous line in the Man from Snow River and down by Kosciuszko, blah, 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 and the pine-clad ridges. Hang on. 
We've been talking about snow gums for the last 20 minutes, but in this dry Biadvo area, there's a native pine called the cypress pine. It's the only part of the mountains where there are pine-clad ridges. So one thing and another, Banjo writes about pine-clad ridges in the Manfrosnow River. There are stories of daring rides in the area, and all the stockmen in the area were, were Indigenous. So how can you not assume that the character that Banjo got his man from was it had to be an indigenous man? Yeah, and Banjo, of course, couldn't have a black hero uh, in in his day. He had to bring a white hero back for his literary Sydney white audience. So absolutely, could not make a hero of an Aboriginal man in the day. Yeah, right. I mean, I thought that was so incredibly fascinating, and mm. I think that you know it shouldn't be controversial to say things like that. But ultimately, yeah, probably would be to have that sort of icon deconstructed in that way for yeah. a lot of people. But you know what? Personally, I think it's very, very cool. And I loved that bit of research. Um, I also wanted to ask, what lessons did you learn in writing this book that you think could be applicable to environmental fights in general? Because you talk obviously about that sort of iconography, that mythology that people are attached to, but what lessons do you think that carries for other bigger fights, like things around green energy, things about like the renewable revolution? Um, Do you think that there are things that we can take away from this? Yes. I mean, I go back to the what I said about the nature of this project, the Brumby Wars, which, which was not a polemic. It was not a one-sided rant. And I love a one-sided rant, but it, was, <laughs> but it wasn't that. Don't we all? <laughs> yeah. I had to fight every instinct in my body to write this thing. <laughs> but, but I went there. And th- where there is, is, is to all sides. Mm. Um, and, uh, you know... Few people on the other side were a little bit despicable, I'd have to say, but but most of them were, were humans with a passion and I treated that passion with respect on the pages. So to answer your question, if we are going to move forward in environmental battles, we must give respect to those who are on the other side of the battle to us. Now, I do not mean people like climate change deniers, mm. just as... I spoke about people spouting ju- junk science in the... the Brum- See, there are some people that say Brumbies don't do damage. Well, I'm sorry, that's just garbage and that didn't make it into the book. Yeah, sure. Unless it was in the context of me saying, this person says they don't do damage, but look, <laughs> some damage. Um, so we mustn't entertain the extreme anti-science, anti-logic, anti-reason people, but we must go to people like coal miners before we make decisions on closing coal mines and we must that's just the the mindset that we have to take in any environmental battle is to treat our fellow citizens as humans like we are and just have a little bit of an open mind and you know i sat i sat with john barilaro in his office for this book and we had a good chat and it was a good and it was a good discussion and 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 good things came out of it and i gained some understanding from it some of that understanding was about his sneaky tactics <laughs> and that kind of... You can op- say that he's not in office anymore, so yeah, it's fine. Yeah, the kind of operator that he really is. But some of it was of his genuine passion as well. And I learnt from that. And, you know, I haven't read the Cole book where someone goes and sits with Gautam Adani, the head of Adani, mm. and speaks to reef scientists and snorkels the reef themselves in the bleached coral. Um, that's what I did in the Brumby Wars. My understanding of the issue is greater for it. The reader's understanding of the issue is greater for it. And I think all of us can be better environmental c- citizens if we at least go somewhere 
not all the way, not all the way down the track, but just a few steps down the track towards understanding the other side. That is a fantastic point and it's a fantastic place to leave this conversation. Ant, thank you so much for having a chat with me. Thank you, Elfie, and I would urge everyone to go and buy the Brumby Wars. It's on sale bloody everywhere. (laughs) There you go. Uh, Any good bookstores, I'd say. Before we head off today, we would like to acknowledge the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation, the traditional custodians of the land on which we're recording today. We'd like to pay our respects to their elders past, present and emerging, as well as extend that respect to any Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people's here today. And before we head off, I uh, would just like to say that we've got a couple more episodes coming up over the summer series. It's going to be good content for listening to while you're on your holidays. It's going to deviate a little bit from the traditional stuff that we've been pushing out at the moment. But yeah, keep your eyes peeled for those uploads and make sure to hit up our Twitter and Instagram while you're at it. Thank you so much. Thanks, Elfie. Bye. Bye.